You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Peace be with you. What a joy it is uh, to be with you this morning. If you are first-time guests, hello. Uh, My name is Jamal. I am one of the pastors here. We are thrilled that you would spend uh, this morning with us. Um, And if you're a member of Sojourn, what's up? What's popping? What's crack-a-lacking? Good to see you. As we uh, set our hearts on the Word of of God, uh, as the first song says, Uh, that we sung today. May we be reminded that we serve a Christ who pursues the broken, who pursues those who are weeping, and he weeps with those who weeps. And if you're here today and you're rejoicing, it's springtime, things are looking good, uh, stimulus check came through and you're excited about that, uh, we rejoice with you because in Christ, um, he rejoices with us. So wherever you are today, God meets you where you are and he welcomes you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are truly good. Your mercy is everlasting and your truth endures for all generations. Thank you for that truth, that your truth is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Now speak, Lord for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we all have been there, right? We're watching a a movie and we are thoroughly enjoying it. And as we watch the movie and as it unfolds, we're like, I think I get the plot. I think I get the story. I think I get where this is going. And then suddenly, boom, out of nowhere, Uh, Something else is introduced into the plot that you did not see. Perhaps the the one that you thought was the bad guy or the bad girl are actually uh, the ones who are telling the truth. And the person who was the the good person is the one who is bad. We love those stories. We love those moments when a narrator is able to tell a story in such a way that it draws you in and just at the right time. They kind of disorient you with new information. That is great for movies, uh, but being surprised in real life uh, doesn't go as well, right? Uh, Being surprised with new information or learning that a friend who you thought was a friend was actually a foe or the person that you thought was good was actually bad and the person who was bad was actually out for your good is very disorienting. And as we look at the gospel story this morning of of Jesus and his crucifixion, the first part of that story that we'll pick up next week, we see a scene that is rather disorienting. Um, All throughout the gospel narratives, we see that Jesus is being treated as a criminal and as a enemy. And a lot of people is mistreating him. Pilate, the governor, is going to mistreat him. The Sanhedrin, who's like the Supreme Court of Israel, who's over their civic and religious uh, 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 court, is going to mistreat him. 
Uh, you're going to have other criminals that's going to mistreat him. You're going to have the soldiers that's going to mistreat him. Everybody is mistreating Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 27, not to spend uh, to take too much thunder for next week's sermon. In verse 54, we read this. And when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified. And said, truly, this man was the son of God. Could you imagine being that centurion? Could you imagine being those who was close to that centurion? And you have just beaten Jesus, ridiculed and mocked him. And all of a sudden, when he says his last breath, the earth quakes. There's a natural phenomenon that happens as the S-U-N stops shining because the S-O-N is shining because two suns can't shine at the same time. And all of a sudden you realize that you had it all wrong. And the point that I want to get to through this text, the thing that I want us to look at is how God took something so foolish as the cross. And he used it to bring freedom to those he would redeem. And I want you to see and understand that God is in the business of using the foolish things of this world to bring freedom. And there perhaps are some things that you've experienced in your life or some things that you are going through right now that just seem so foolish to you, so unnecessary to you, so over the top to you, so dramatic to you. And what I want you to see is that God is in the business of of using things that are foolish to bring freedom to his people to bring joy to his people, to bring forgiveness and reconciliation to his people, to bring maturation to his people. And maybe what we need is to ask the Lord to give us the eyes to interpret whatever we're going through or whatever we see with eyes of faith so that we can truly see that he uses all things for our good and his glory. And if he can use the cross of Christ to bring good into our lives and redemption and good into the world, then truly he can use the cross that you are bearing. And so as we look at today's text, I want us to remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. For the Greeks seek wisdom, but but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. What we're about to see uh, today and slowly work through is something that is so foolish. Death on the cross. The person who died on the cross was this was this. Inherited, was seen as a curse, was seen as a fool. Uh, No one, either Jew or Gentile, would speak of their name in a positive way thereafter. It was the most shameful act that one could experience. And yet God used that to save both Jew and Gentile. And as we move through this sermon, there's just two quick movements that I want to take us through. 
The first is I want us to see the characters involved in Jesus' suffering. And the thing I want us to see as I highlight some of the the main characters that's involved in chapter 27 is I want us to to just see how how much they thought they were right and how their hearts deceived them in being able to miss who Jesus truly is. And then a second movement that I want to show us is the irony of the kingdom or a kingdom irony. And the point that I want you to see there is simply that Uh, God has upside down ways. And he and we are part of an upside down kingdom. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so it requires faith in him to live at peace in his kingdom. If we're going to be instruments of peace to others. So first, let's look at the characters that we see here. And the first character I want to point out is the character who dominates this plot, and that is Pilate. Uh, Pilate is distracted, and he um, is distracted by his privilege and his power. He's the, the governor, and he has a very important position in Rome. And the reason he's distracted is because he has made mistakes in the past. History teaches us that the Jewish people uh, did not uh, like Pontius Pilate because uh, he was just disrespectful, flat out. A story is told that when he came into into power in order to win the emperor over um, uh, to, to like him, that he desecrated the temple. He put up a picture of the emperor in the temple which uh, to a Jewish person was the ultimate no-no as they uh, believe, as we as Christians believe, that we only worship one God. And so he put up these pictures in the temple that says, hail uh, to Caesar. And then as the Jews uh, and Jewish people just revolted, uh, this caused a a really big problem. Um, And he kept pressing in. He not only threatened them, but he took the money that was in the temple And he used it for his own pleasure and for his own pet projects. So Pilate is an interesting position now where he has the uh, Jewish people who don't like him. But he also has the emperor who is kind of tired of him because he keeps making decisions that are not wise and it keeps making it up to him. And so in essence, at this point of history, at this historical moment, he's kind of on probation. And so he's trying to do things that will excite the Jewish people and win them back to his side politically, as well as bring in Rome. And what we see about Pilate here is four quick things in this text. One is that that Pilate was impressed with Jesus. In verse 14, it talks about how he was quite amazed at Jesus's restraint. And we're going to see that uh, he believes and knows that Jesus ultimately is innocent, which brings us to the second thing that the narrator shows us about Pilate in verse 18, that Pilate was a unjust judge. Verse 18 tells us that uh, he knew that the reason that the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, was bringing uh, Jesus uh, to him and before him was not because Jesus had done something wrong, but because they were envious of him. And Matthew has been showing all along that the religious leaders are envious of Jesus because he could preach, because he has a demonstration of power with what he preaches, and everybody loves him. I mean, women and children are comfortable around him, and he explains the law and the Torah in ways that is absolutely confounding to them, and everybody. 
every time they think that they have them in a trap, he outwits them and shows that he's a greater philosopher. So Pilate was unjust because he knew that Jesus was innocent. And yet, even though he has the power to free him, he goes along with the plan in order to keep his job. We also see that Pilate lacked wisdom. In this text, we we see that Pilate's wife is going to have a dream. Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with the righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. And we know that anytime a man ignores his wife's dream, he doesn't have wisdom, right? (laughs) Women are like, amen. Men are like, what? But he lacks wisdom wisdom. He lacks discernment. And finally, we see that Pilate was self-deceived. In the text, we see that Pilate is going to wash his hands of Jesus's blood, even though he knows he's innocent because the crowd is getting rowdy and saying, crucify him. We want him instead of Barabbas. In verse 24, it says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that the riot was starting, instead he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And we all know as readers who's watching in, we all are screaming like, man, you are not innocent of his blood. In fact, you are probably the most guilty. You have the power to do something about it. But in order to play politics and and because you love the praise of man, you are going to kill a man who is innocent. You're going to kill a man who is innocent. So Pilate is distracted. And he even convinces himself that Jesus is deserving of it and he should have to pay the penalty even though he's not guilty because the crowds say so. And the next person we see in this, in this passage that I've already talked about is the Sanhedrin, major characters. The Sanhedrin as well, they love their power so much. They're so envious of Jesus that they ignore the fact that he has done many miracles and he has done nothing but good. He is the epitome of good. When you peel back the layers to Jesus' heart, all you get is perfection, kindness, peace. And when you peel back their heart, all you got was was pride and and a lust for power and a lust for authority and importance. And yet they allow their envy to, to rule over them. And just think about how envious you have to be. If you are the one who sits on the law of Moses, you know the Torah inside and out. And in general, history teaches us that they tried to have as balanced scales as they, as they could, of course, uh, sometimes conveniently. But over and over, as we look at the trial of Jesus, we see that they are manipulating things and doing the opposite of what the law has said. They are calling in false witnesses. And they know that over and over in the Old Testament, it says that you shall not bear false witnesses. And they are encouraging people to lie about Jesus. They're having these kangaroo courts. They're meeting in times where courts shouldn't even be convening because their heart is so envious of Jesus. Then we see the crowds, verse 22 through 23. The crowd, some in the crowd who just earlier that week was praising Jesus are now yelling, crucify him. And the question is, is why? And the reason is, is that the crowd, they had political aspirations too. those who were a Jewish among the crowd. 
Some of them really began to believe that this was the Messiah, that this was the one who was going to free them. He did miracles. He brought food. He quoted messianic passages. But to see their Messiah so weak, being taunted, being held by the Romans in such a pitiful way, their heart turns and says, wait a minute, this cannot be our Messiah. No, he is supposed to free us from Rome, not take a beating like this from Rome. And they feel betrayed and they're upset and they yell, crucify him. And then you have the Gentile crowds, those who were Romans that were in the crowd. They're yelling, crucify him, because this is their opportunity to live out the racism or ethnocentrism or whatever you want to call it that's in their own heart. To finally see these people who are Jewish, who think that they are the people of God, to have their king before them, the one that so many of them put hope in, being humiliated is the, uh, the, 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 the ultimate opportunity. Now, here's the thing. The reason I'm slow baking this is because I want you to see how demonic this is. I want you to see how horrible this is, that all of these different characters have things that's going on in their hearts, expectations that are not being met, and their hearts are turning away from the most true, lovely, and beautiful being in the universe. And our hearts are just like them. We can become so self-centered or have these expectations because we think if only things would work out this way and our hearts become bitter, we become off balance, everything becomes about us, and suddenly we're filled with envy and unkindness and hate. And we use our words to tear down brothers and and, and sisters and people who are of different ethnicities, all because of politics or desires. In verse 39, we see the cross perhaps at their worst. Look at this. Those who pass by him. Now, Jesus is on the cross hanging there, hurting, gasping for air, and people are just walking past him. They're yelling insults at him. They're shaking their heads. They're saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild in the three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from there. But also in this passage, we have the soldiers Verse 27 says the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residency and gathered the whole company around him. And here the word company is also in some of the other gospels. We get the word the praetorium, which was uh, could be up to 600 soldiers that would protect the governor. They're in the governor's mansion. These soldiers are coming before Jesus of all people. Barabbas could have been wrong. Everybody knows him. He's like, uh, uh, you know, the Clyde and Bonnie. He's like a notorious criminal that everyone knows should be the one being crucified and said, they say, let him go. And they crucified the one who's innocent, who's done all these things. And then they begin to mock him. Now look at this and imagine up to 600 soldiers, perhaps mocking Jesus. And I want you to read this because Jesus is going to receive all of these insults and all of these mockings because he loves you. I don't think as Christians we pause to read these narratives enough and to think about not only what Jesus endured by having God's wrath poured out on him, but the absolute trauma, embarrassment, 
and, and shame that was being placed upon him. And the reason we want to read this slowly is because when you experience trauma, abuse, embarrassment, and shame, and when you think no one else in the world gets it or gets you, you have a Savior in heaven on the right-hand side of the Father who is interceding for you as well as who is empathizing with you. Jesus gets you. Slowly, we'll read through this. They stripped him and they dressed him in a scarlet robe. That was a soldier's robe. A soldier took off his robe, put it on the back of Jesus. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and they mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. They treated him as if Caesar's here was before them. Do you hear them getting on their knees? Do you hear the armor clinging and clanging? Do you hear the voices yelling? Do you hear them laughing? Then they spat on him. Not then he spat on him. Then they spat on him. They took the staff that they just gave him and they began to hit him repeatedly upon the head. And after they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe. They put his own clothes on him and they led him away to be crucified. Verse 32, as they were going out, they found a, a, Syrian, a Syrian man named Simon. They forced him to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull or the place of death, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. Now, many times when we look at this passage, the emphasis can be on how the nails went in his palms or in his feet, as other uh, gospel accounts share. But I, Matthew, interesting enough, gives us one sentence to him actually being crucified. After they crucified him, they divided his clothes and they cast lots. And I believe the reason they did that is Matthew is drawing out more on the way in which Jesus was mocked. And above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. In verse 38, then two criminals were crucified with them, one on the right and one on the left. And the rest of the passage talks about what these criminals who were on the cross with Jesus, along with the crowds that they joined in in mocking. How messed up is this? Jesus was literally filleted to his bones. Part of being crucified was being tar- tortured. And the Romans had figured out how, how, to, how to torture someone just enough to keep them alive and to get them on a cross. They would fillet a person's skin almost to the bone. Look at how demonic this is. These other men who have probably been filleted and beaten just like them, in their death, their hearts mock Jesus as well. Look at what they said. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in the three days, save yourselves. You are the son of God. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, the religious leaders, the scribes and the elders, they mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And this is just a pause. Just pause here real quick. And I, I want you to just always remember 
that leadership is very important? Look at how the leaders of Israel turned the people against a man who only did good for Israel. And look at how when the leaders use bad rhetoric, the people begin to use bad rhetoric. Character does matter. We continue. Verse 42, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him now rescue himself if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. That brings us to our second point, which is going to be very short. And it's this. I want us to see the this kind of kingdom irony, the way that God works. In this passage, we see people call, say to Jesus, hail king of the Jews. We see them say, call him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. We see them say, you will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. We hear them call him king of Israel. We hear them say, if he trusts in God, let God rescue him now, if he takes pleasure in him. We hear them repeatedly mock him and call him the son of God. And what's ironic about all of this mocking and all of this language is that it's true. Every word that they say is actually true about it. This has been Matthew's point since the first chapter that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the king of Israel, one who is better than David that he is the son of God, that he trusts in God like no one else. Where Israel failed in the wilderness and, and did not trust God for 40 days, Jesus will trust them for 40 days. And when he is tempted, he is going to be victorious. And yet Satan, in this ironic twist, is using these very true and beautiful things to, to attack him. My point is this. is that everything is not always how it looks. And that God in his upside down kingdom works in upside down ways. And the things that seem like uh, they may be destroying you or going to harm you or, and take you out may be the very thing that God is using to draw you to himself, to mature you, to give you a different perspective of him so that you can know him, grow in character and confidence and glorify him more. Which means that perhaps as we look at this passage and we look at the scriptures that we need to Take God's invitation to see that he uses the foolish things of this world for our good, for our freedom, for our our healing, for our ministry, for his purpose. So there's two quick points of application that I want to put before you as you consider in the sufferings of Christ and how God used the most foolish, humiliating act in human history, which was the cross for the redemption of mankind. There's two things that we need to to see. One, I think that this text causes us to ask God, Lord, would you give 
would you give me eyes of faith? Would you help me to believe that you are in the business of using every incident and accident, every experience and even sinful things, that horrible things that were done to us, that you can use those things for my good and your glory. Lord, give me eyes of faith to see. What if we, as as a people, we as Sojourn Community Church, together begin to live by faith in such a way that we believe that God really wants to use all things for our good and his glory? What if we as a church begin in the midst of, of, of having difficult experiences at work and being mocked and insulted, begin to pray together, Lord, help my brother, help my sister begin to see that you can use this. Give them eyes of faith to see that you are at work. What if that difficult marriage, what if that marriage that didn't work, What if that pain that you are experiencing right now in your heart that no one else knows or or really understands is what God wants to use so that you can experience him in a fresh and a new way? David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And we're like, yes, and amen. God is amazing. God is dope. And God is for me. But then we forget that the same one who led us by still waters is also the one who David says, and he leads me into the valley of the shadow of death. For his name's sake. What if that shadow of death, as you experience it, if you just took time to say, Lord, you are leading me here and you are doing it for your name's sake. Sojourn, God does not exist to give us what we want in this life. You exist to work to glorify him. You exist for him. And he loves you. He is for you. But he has the big picture in mind why we only can see this small slither. And so trust looks like us believing, God, you are kind, you are compassionate, you are loving, and you are sovereign. And if you brought me to it, you will bring me through it. Just give me eyes of faith to see and to believe that. And the areas of my heart that don't believe it, Lord, give me the strength and the courage to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Second and finally, this passage encourages us to follow the example of Christ. Now, this just blew me away. I'll be honest. I, at the end of my study this, this week, I was reading 1 Peter chapter 2. Lord, we pray right now in the name of Jesus for that ambulance, and we pray for the person um, whom they either have picked up or who are going to help. I pray, Lord, uh, that you would redeem them, that you would heal them, um, and that you would bring safety in Christ's name. Amen. We see here... In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 25, really, a really strong picture that just blew me away at the end of the week. And I was about to scrap the whole sermon and build my whole sermon around this passage. I was like, ain't nobody got time for that. Look at this. 
For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you. Listen to this. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no sin was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live in righteousness by his wounds. You have been set free by his wounds. You have been healed. For you were like a sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your soul. As we look at and as we read the the narrative of Christ's passion for you, of Christ uh, being insulted for you, as him being mocked for you, as him showing the absolute maximum restraint as he was all powerful and could have called a legion of angels to wipe out everyone but didn't because he loved you. As you look at his example, may you by the power of the Holy Spirit follow his example by entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly and the one who is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. As you struggle in that difficult relationship with a roommate, as you struggle perhaps in that classroom, um, in high school, with with classmates who tease you because you are pursuing a, a life that is honoring to Jesus. As you talk to that professor who mocks Christianity, as you enter into uh, these public spaces and are mocked for reading a, a Bible that seems archaic and old, as you eat at a dinner table with siblings and parents who treat you differently because you follow Jesus, may you see his example and entrust your soul to the one who judges justly and remember that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. May you bear your cross knowing that Christ's cross brought you freedom and that you faithfully following your cross in front of other people could actually bring them freedom. May you do this all, all while, I love this, constantly returning your heart to the shepherd who leads you beside still waters and in the shadow of the valley of death, the shepherd of your soul. May the Lord protect us from the sin of of Pilate, of placing politics and career over faithfulness to Jesus. May the Lord protect us from the sin of the religious leaders who thought that knowledge of God was equivalent to knowing God. May the Lord protect us from the crowds, from being sheep who follow the voice of false shepherds and allow us to hear the voice of the true shepherd. May the Lord give us the grace today to see that we are Barabbas, notorious sinners who deserve death, 
hell and eternal separation from him, but he loves us so much and redefines our identity. And he allowed his son to bear the punishment that we deserve so that we could go free. And not only be not guilty, but in his sight, be perfect. Every Sunday we celebrate this gospel that was just proclaimed by reminding ourselves that the innocent died condemned so that the condemned could be treated and stand before a holy and righteous God as innocent. What amazing grace. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way he took a cup, he says, this cup is a new covenant of my blood shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we preach or proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, um, we ask those who are Christians, who are, uh, by the grace of God, living a life of forgiveness and, and love towards neighbors to partake in this meal. You can do so by taking the cup in front of you and eating the wafer and drinking the juice, which represents the blood of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, we ask you to not partake at this time. Um, It's not to shame you. There will be um, some Christians not partaking at this time as they're going to use this time to reflect on the goodness of Christ and ask him to give them a heart to love those who are around them. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.